Let me ask you guys a question, and you can nod. I, I want to see some nods, especially uh, from, from you dads out there. Uh, have you ever been sure of something? I mean, like, been, been really, really sure of something and then found out you were wrong. Has that, has that ever happened to any of you guys? All right, wives, you can nod your head too. Kids, you can nod your head too. I'm sure it has happened. Now, my family knows that this is the story of my life, okay? Like, I trust my gut, all right? Now, my brain is filled with all kinds of useless trivia, and I trust myself. So whenever I think of something, it's like, oh, yeah, that's it. That's a fact, because that's the way I remember it. So, of course, that's what happened, right? And I'm, I'm committed to it, and I'm, I'm right, except for when I'm not, right? So I have this confidence that says I am going to be right in what I say here. And so does my confidence have anything to do with whether or not I'm actually right? No, no you can be confidently wrong, so the other day, like my girls and I, we started this game uh, earlier this year. It's called Tesla Taps. Do you remember the old slug bug game? Uh, well, there's not very many classic slug bugs anymore, but man, let me tell you, Springfield is filled with Teslas, okay? So every time you see a Tesla, you use a Tesla tap and you hit each other. So this led to a conversation on, uh, hey, what's the most common car? And like without missing a beat, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a Ford. You know, Ford, there's, more, there's no Ford, more Fords on the road. More Fords are sold. No, it's the Toyota. So, like, I was convinced I was right, right? Like, and then I'm, like, driving along, and I'm like, Toyota, 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 Toyota. So I had to look this up, and, you know, come to find out after looking it up, I was wrong. Uh, I think, though, there is one instance, and I'll tell the story real quick, of probably the most humiliating time I have been convinced I was right. I mean, the certainty was overwhelming, and I was not. I was in the sixth grade, so we're talking 12 years old, and I'm still scarred by this, okay? All right, so 12 years old, sixth grade, I get into an argument with one of my friends about whether or not France and Spain are in Eastern or Western Europe. And I said, well, it's in Eastern Europe. France and Spain are in Eastern Europe. And he's like, no, they're not. You're stupid. They're in Western Europe. I'm like, no, you're stupid. They're in Eastern Europe. And so, like, we're having this argument. And I'm getting madder and madder because this idiot cannot see the truth that Spain and France are in Eastern Europe. So he goes, let's get a globe. I'm like, yeah, let's get a globe. So he gets it out, and he goes, show me. And I said, okay, so here's the eastern seaboard of the United States, east coast, and right across the Atlantic Ocean, the east coast of Europe faces us. And he's like, <laughs> he just looked at me like I was dumb as a box of rocks, man. And he goes, the east coast of the United States corresponds to, like, Russia and Ukraine, right? And, the wet, the, and as soon as he said that, I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then the west coast of the United States corresponds to, and I just was like, I, I felt so stupid. I mean, I was mad at this guy. I was convinced I was right. And ultimately, my certainty had absolutely nothing to do with it. I was certainly wrong. And so here it is, you know, almost 30 years later, and I still remember how wrong I was. As we've been moving through the book of Luke, uh, which I think is fun, and I've said this before, that we get to move through the book of Luke when it's not Christmas season. We get to like chew on what's here without thinking about all the pageantry around Christmas. So as we've been moving through the book of Luke, uh, one of the things that Luke really wants us to do is to have certainty, but to have certainty in the things that are correct. 
He doesn't want us to be certain in things that are wrong. So he's building a case for who Jesus is so that we can have certainty in what we've been taught about him. He began his letter by saying this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, his friend or associate, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So it's not just about being certain, it's about having the facts right. When it comes to who Jesus is, we can't afford to be wrong. We have eternity at stake here. Is he the savior of the world, or is he just some moral teacher who became a martyr? Now we just... Uh, read, uh, Kelly read it for us a while ago, the account of Gabriel announcing the virgin birth. Now, there are so many ways that we could move through this passage. There's so many things that we could grab onto and work this text uh, and come out with some fun application. Uh, as we move through the rest of the, uh, the birth story of Jesus over the next several weeks, we're going to come back to this. We're going to keep our eyes on this passage. We're not going to lose track of it. Uh, but today, what I want to do is just key in on the importance of the miracle of the virgin birth. So that's where we're headed today, the importance of the miracle of the virgin birth. Now, last week we talked about signs. We spent the whole week working through different signs. Today we're going to see that the virgin birth is yet another sign of who Jesus really is. I want you to, to listen to a verse from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, now, this, this is a prophecy given to Isaiah for his immediate time and his immediate setting that has implications for a future time and a future setting. So in Isaiah's day, this child was to be assigned to King Ahaz and to, the, to uh, the kingdom of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, that his enemies, that Ahaz's enemies will fail, that God is going to protect the kingdom of Judah, and that hope will reign. Judah will be saved. And he wanted Ahaz and Judah to know that he, God, will be with them. And Judah needed to know that God was with them. Because after this threat had passed, after this situation had been resolved, the Assyrians are going to be coming and things are going to be far more challenging in the days of the Assyrians than in this uh, particular instance that they're dealing with. And what God wanted him to see through the prophet Isaiah is that this child would be a sign of hope, a sign of protection, that God will be with his people. Now later, this promise from God through Isaiah is going to have an even greater meaning. And its fulfillment won't just pertain to the kingdom of Judah, but it's going to be relevant for the whole world. God would come and send his son born of a woman. 
And she would not merely be just some woman. Like uh, the, the, the prevailing theory for Isaiah is that in the story of Isaiah, in his time, in his setting, that this, this might have been Isaiah's child. It might have been Isaiah's grandchild. I, the, the context for King Ahaz was not necessarily that this child was going to be a miracle uh, birth, but just that a young child or a child would come from a young woman as a sign that God was with his people. But in this future fulfillment, something greater was going to happen. God would send his son born of a woman, and she would, this young woman would not merely be some young lady of marriageable age giving birth by natural means, but the greatness of this child's future mission would be met by a birth that was also spectacular and great. God would show us that it was him who was coming to be with us through the miracle of a supernatural birth. In Luke chapter 1, as, as Kelly read for us earlier, the Greek word for virgin means one who has not had sex with a man, meaning it would be physically impossible for her to have had a child. Now, within, within, the, con, within the, the definition of this word, there, there is a broader meaning of this word virgin that could mean a woman of marriageable age. Okay, but even if you wanted to argue that that's what Luke had in mind, the context of the passage will not allow it. As we look at Luke chapter 1, the only definition that makes sense here is that this woman, Mary, was a virgin in the truest sense of the word. She had never been with a man. Let's just walk through the passage a little bit. In verses 26 and 27, Mary is introduced as a virgin who is betrothed. She is not yet married. She's engaged. Then the angel makes his pronouncement that she was going to have a child. And what is her response? When she is chat like, all right, hey, you're going to have a child. What's her response? Her response is, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Like, how can this happen? I've never been with a man. How am I going to get pregnant? That, that's not the way the universe works. And then the angel gives a threefold answer that confirms that this birth was going to be supernatural. First, the angel says that she will conceive by the Holy Spirit, right, not by a man. Okay? She will not conceive by a man. The angel does not instruct her to, to elope and rush her marriage to Joseph. Not at all, right? In fact, Matthew's account, which we're not going to take time to read today, says that when Joseph found out, he had planned to uh, break off the engagement quietly, okay? So, so rather than accelerate the marriage, Joseph was like, really, until the angel came and talked to him, he was like, I'm just, I'm not even going here, right? Second, as a sign that God is in the miracle baby business, right? Where does he point her? Whose example does he give? This is what we talked about last week, right? Uh, he sends her to Elizabeth, and he says, hey, I want you to think about Elizabeth, your relative who is old, who is barren, and so that you can know that a miracle is about to happen to you, a supernatural miracle, well, I want to show you that there's another miracle that's happening. The aged and the barren is going to have a child. Let that be a sign for you that God is at work. And the third confirmation that this would be a supernatural birth, all right, that this is not going to happen through natural means, is how the angel ends his visit. What's the last 
expression that the angel says to Mary before he departs. And he says this, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, that's important because she's sitting there and she's going, how can this be? This is impossible. It takes a mom and a dad to have a baby. This is impossible, right? And the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. These three facts show us that Luke is clear. This baby is going to be a new and better fulfillment of what uh, was prophesied in Isaiah 7. All right, God will be with us, but not in some intangible spiritual sense, but in the flesh. God will come as a Savior, Jesus Christ. And He won't just save us from armies and those standing at the walls, but He will save us from sin and from death. So today what I want to do is I want to look back at the passage that we read just a minute ago, and I cut out everything that wasn't what the angel says. So we're just going to look at the message of the angel, and we're going to unpack how important this virgin birth is. So what is the announcement from Gabriel? We're going to, pretend, uh, we're going to pick up in verse 28, and then we're going to skip around a little bit. You'll see little ellipses where we're jumping around in the passage to get to what Gabriel says. It says, And he came to her, he, Gabriel the angel, to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. All right, so what does the angel say? If we're going to boil this passage down and just pull out the, 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 the brass tacks of what's there, what's he say? The angel says that Mary will conceive. All right, she's going to get pregnant. That his name will be Jesus. Now, what's Jesus mean? Jesus, as a name, means Savior. And he's going to be great. He's going to be called Son of the Most High. He's going to sit on David's throne, and his kingdom will not end. And not only will Mary conceive, but she's going to conceive in a unique way, a special way, by the Holy Spirit. Now, because this child is no human father, and because the child is the result of a powerful and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, this child will be called holy and will be called the Son of God. 
Now, let's boil this all down into one simple sentence. And here's the sentence for you. What is the message of Gabriel? God is sending his son to earth to be the Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit born of a woman. All right, let me read that again. Just just one more time. What's the message that that he is uh, conveying to Mary? God is sending his son to earth to be the Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit born of a woman. Now, what I love about the Scripture is that it often testifies to the same things over and over again in different contexts, in different settings, but that just gives us a greater sense of the importance of the message. So what we see is is later, and we actually just read this a couple months ago when we were going through the book of Galatians, that Paul gives this same basic message in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And I want to unpack Galatians 4, 4 and 5 uh, as a summary statement to the message of Gabriel. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So why is it that Paul says that uh, God sent forth his son? It's to redeem the world, right? And what does Jesus' name mean? Savior. So Gabriel says the reason that Jesus is coming is to save the world. Paul picks up on this in Galatians 4 and says Jesus is coming to redeem the world. That is his mission. Now, how's he going to come? How's he going to come and accomplish his mission? And this is where we're going to spend our time today. And we're going to see this, that it is God who will send. Okay, so who's the active mover here? It's God. God is the one who sends. Now, who will he send? He will send his son. And how will God send his son? She will be born of a woman. So we're going to take a minute. We're just going to break down those three ideas. God will send. send. He will not send. He will send. He will send his son, and his, how will he send? He will send his son born of a woman. All right, so let's just look at that first part. God sent forth. Now, I think this is important for us to see. God sent forth. Now, I, I want you to think about this. It doesn't say God created. It says God sent. That's important, Okay. God did not create his son. He sent his son. What does that imply? That his son was with him to be sent. This is evidence that Jesus is co-eternal with God, reigning with God in heaven until the fullness of time had come. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, stepped out of eternity. Now, what What did he do? God sent. God is the one who is active. He sent out from him his son, out of eternity. All right, so let's let's dive into this. Who did he send? He sent his son. All right, now, Paul makes a very important and clear delineation for us here. Now, all right, in, in one sense, we are all sons and daughters, right, of God. 
We are sons and daughters in the sense that we are his creation. And as his creation, he's our father and we are his children. Okay, but, but this is something a little bit different here. Paul makes a distinction for us in our passage. We are adopted as children through faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is a son in a unique way. So what's it tell us in our passage? It says, God sent forth his son. Whose son? His son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what kind of level are we uh, sons and daughters of God? We are adopted. But, but Jesus' sonship is unique. And I think John 3.16 helps us with that. So let's just look at the verse we all know, John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, we look at that word only, and for us it just means he had one Son, and that's good, that's true, that's right. But the word here behind only really encapsulates this idea of unique. Jesus is God's Son in a unique way in a way that's different from the rest of created or, or the created order. So, so yes, it's appropriate for us all to say we are sons and daughters of God, but, but Jesus is a son of God in a unique way, right? Okay, so the son existed eternally and was present with the father in pre-incarnate form. Now, pre-incarnate form, there's, a, there's a, a sentence we say all the time, right? A phrase we say all the time. What's it mean to be pre-incarnate? When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, it is God, uh, Jesus existing in heaven eternally, putting on flesh, becoming a carnal man. That's where that word, you hear the word carnal in there? So it, pre-incarnation means before he took on flesh. All right, now the, the sonship of Jesus is not the result of reproduction. There was no time when Jesus was not. Jesus is not a creation. He has always been the Son. Okay? He is not a creation. He has always been the Son. John 1, 1, uh, 1 through 3 gives us a great insight into this. Jesus being co-eternal with God, existing in heaven pre, uh, pre-incarnation. It says this in John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Now, we know that the word word here is a reference to Jesus. And what does it tell us? It says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, Jesus has always been from the the formation of creation. It says right here, all things were made through him. So it doesn't just mean the beginning of our existence is when Christ existed. It means even before that, because the world came to being through the Word. How could it have come to be if that's when Jesus arrived? Jesus has always been, 
He has reigned co-eternally with God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things that have been made were made by him. So that means he was there before the foundations of the world were laid. Jesus existed eternally. But he was sent from the Father, born of a woman. He took on human form and was conceived in Mary's womb. Paul speaks of it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, what? Born being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul tells us that Jesus held a a godly form. He was equal to God, but he did not count that equality as something to be grasped. I like the way that the Holman Bible translates this. Also, the new edition of the NIV translates it this way. It says that Jesus did not use his equality with God for his own advantage. While Jesus was on earth incarnated, while he was a human being, he was still one with the Father. As a matter of fact, John 10.10 says, I and the Father are one. So he is still very much God, but he did not see his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, being found in human form. He took on humanity. He existed in godly form. Now he is in earthly human form as he came to earth uh, as Jesus Christ. And now how much human was he? How human was he? He was so human that he died. Can, can the eternal God die? No, he's, he's eternally immortal, all-powerful. He cannot die. How human was Jesus? So human, he died. And not only did he die, he died a humiliating and humbling death, the death of a criminal on a cross. Now, what's interesting is he died. We all have that in common with Jesus, though we know he rose from the dead. But he was born something we all have in common with Jesus. But just as Jesus' birth, or just as Jesus' death was humbling, Luke unpacks later, and we'll get to it later, just how humbling Jesus' birth was. So think about that for a second. Not only did Jesus take on humanity, the God of the universe being clothed in humanity, that's pretty humbling, right? He died a criminal's death, and we're going to see later, he basically died, or was born a beggar's birth. A humble beginning and a humble end for the God of the universe. He was sent from the Father. Now let's look back a second ago uh, to what what it says in Galatians chapter 4. It says, God sent forth his son born of woman. All right, so she was born of woman. Now this is something that was prophesied from the consequences of the very first sin. In Genesis chapter 3, there's a curse given to Adam. There's a curse 
given to uh, Eve, and there's a curse given to the serpent. And within this curse to the serpent, God says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, now, now this word that's mentioned here in Genesis 3.15 is the word offspring offspring of a woman. The Hebrew word for offspring is seed. Seed. Now, seed usually is a reference to the male contribution of reproduction. I just find that interesting, okay? Now, I'm no Hebrew language scholar. I can't tell you if seed is ever used of a woman in any other case, but what I can tell you here is that as God is talking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, Adam is not mentioned, okay? And I don't think that that is an accident. I think in Genesis 3.15, we're getting this sincere, the, the descendant of a woman is at play here. The one that will crush the head of the serpent is specifically said to come from a woman. And Mary, of course, is a woman. Now, I just think that's great. Now, Mary had a dad, so that's not to say that men aren't involved here, but Genesis 3.15 identifies that the one who is to come, the one who would defeat the serpent, would come from a woman. And Luke tells us that that is exactly what happened. God sent his son to the earth, born of a woman. Now, though, though Mary was born of a man and a woman, Jesus, the Son of God, would be born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, would be born of a virgin woman. This way, no one on earth could claim fathership of Jesus. As Luke presents the genealogy of Jesus later in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Luke says that it was assumed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. It was assumed. Why was it assumed? Because Joseph, Joseph wasn't his dad. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God is his biological father. Okay, I just I want you to put your head around that for a second. Like, who, who's, your, who's your bio dad? My bio dad is God, right? So he is the son of God, but he is the son of God, right? Now, this, this is cool. Now, as, as he ends this genealogy in Luke chapter 3, in verse 38, he traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. And as he traces this genealogy back to Adam, he gets to something important. He says that Adam is the son of God. Who, 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 who was he born of? He, he didn't have an earthly father. He was born through the creation of God. So what we're supposed to see as we trace through this genealogy is whose son is Jesus? Jesus is God's son. Now, in our brains, as we do this math, if you're anything like me, you think, I mean, couldn't, couldn't he have been born, Jesus? Couldn't he have been born of a human mom and a human dad and then some point along the way, like, God sends the fullness of his sonship on him, and he becomes God's son. Or maybe, maybe God could have created Jesus in heaven, and he's fully created in heaven, formed in heaven, and sent to earth. 
Why the virgin birth? Now, I don't, I don't normally do this, uh, but when somebody who's way, 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 way smarter than you says something really smart, just say what they said, okay? It's just, because I'm certainly wrong all the time. Remember how we began? So we're going to go with this. All right, so there's a theologian. His name's Wayne Grudem. He's still alive and he's still teaching. And as he talks about the virgin birth, he says this. I, w- I want you to, 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 to listen to how he answers those two scenarios I just brought up. So this is a, a lengthy passage, but it's worth reading. All right, it says, The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means God used to send his son into the world as a man. If we think for a moment of other possible ways in which Christ might have come to the earth, none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity in one person. It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and send him to descend from heaven to earth without the benefit of any human parent. Now listen here, this is important. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are. Nor would he be part of the human race that could physically descend from Adam. On the other hand, it probably would have been possible for God to have come into the world with two human parents, both a father and a mother, and his full divine nature miraculously united to his human nature at some point earlier in his life. But then it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God, since his origin was like ours in every way. When we think of these other two possibilities, it helps us understand how God, in his wisdom, ordained the combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ, so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his form being from a human mother, and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. I just love that. The way he says that sets it up perfectly. The the virgin birth is the miracle that unites the divine with the human. The virgin birth is the miracle that unites the divine with the human. Now, in our mind, what we tend to do is this. Make it 50-50. Right, So really what you mean is he's half man and he's half God. He's half man and he's half God. So he's only 50 of each. Okay, but, but I think we should think about this using divine math. Okay, So much like the, 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 the sum of the equation of the Trinity is this. 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Now anybody will tell you that's bad math unless you're God then it's divine math, right? And he says, all right, the the Trinity is God three in one. In the same way, we need to apply divine math to Jesus Christ, where we have a human nature, one, and a divine nature, one. And when we add them together, we don't get 50-50. We get 100% God, 100% human being. Jesus somehow is 200%, but still one. He's not two, he's not half, he's one. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 simply says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I love that, right? Just 
let's just cut it down the middle, make it straight and easy. The fullness of God dwells bodily. He is fully God. He is fully human. Listen to how the author of Hebrews unpacks this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, sent, right? Same language, same idea, sent that we saw in Galatians 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, God, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. I just want to put a little, little put your finger here. Think, where, where, where did Luke start this? That we would be certain, right? So what's the author of Hebrews say? Uh, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us be certain. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, this is another uh, example of Jesus existing with God before he was born. He passed through the heaven. This is the incarnation here. He's taking on humanity. He is the Son of God descending to earth. And he is not so different from us that he didn't have a human experience that was fundamentally different from ours. What's it tell us? The author of Hebrews says that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. The God of the universe can sympathize with our weakness. He was clothed in humanity. He was a man. He can sympathize with what it means to be tired. He can sympathize with what it means to be hungry. He can sympathize with what it means to be lonely because he was human. And then he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And what I think about this is, when do we sin most often? When we are, weakness, when we are weakest, when we are in our most vulnerable. And it tells us here that he can sympathize with our every weakness and was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. This is who Jesus is. He, he had the same fundamental human experience that we did, yet without sin. Now those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus trust that God accepted Jesus' death in our place. He was the perfect Passover lamb, without spots, without blemish, sinless. Several weeks ago when we were working through this series on hell, we, we talked about how we are sinful from birth. And we don't have time to go through these today, but we looked about how uh, in Psalm 51 it says we were conceived in our sin. We looked at Romans 3 and how it says there's no one righteous, not even one. But what do we see about Jesus? Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. One of the miracles of the virgin birth is that Jesus is both inside and outside the line of Adam. Okay, he's both inside and outside the line of Adam. He's inside the bloodline of Adam through Mary in that he uh, is human just like you and me. But just like Adam is the son of God and had no human father, Jesus had no human father. And since Jesus had no human father, he did not inherit the sin of Adam. Okay, that's important for us to hear. Since he had no human father, he did not inherit the sin of Adam. 
If you want to look at Romans chapter 5 in your own notes this week, you can read Romans chapter 5 and it'll unpack this a little bit. We just don't have time to go uh, through there today. So when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, what I want you to do is I want you to think about where, where, uh, Adam, how Adam was created. When Adam was created, when he lived in the garden with Eve before the fall, uh, had, was he human? Was Adam human in the garden before the fall? Yes, he, he absolutely was human. Did Adam have a sin nature before the fall? Was he guilty of sin in his mother? Well, he wasn't born. Was he guilty of sin from conception? No, no, he was not. All right, so Jesus, was Jesus human? Yes. Did Jesus have a sin nature? No. All right, no in the same way that Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature before the fall. All right, so, so when Adam and Eve faced temptation, though, here's the big difference. When Adam and Eve faced temptation, what did they do? They sinned. When Jesus faced temptation, did he sin? No. So he's, he knows what it is to have the weakness of humanity, yet Jesus did not sin. So Jesus never sinned. And not only that, because he's the Son of God, he did not inherit Adam's sin. So this is how Paul can say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What's it tell us there in in 2 Corinthians 5? That Jesus knew no sin, all right? It's not just that Jesus uh, didn't sin, although he didn't. He knew no sin. There was no sin in him or in his nature. But he took our sin on himself as the perfect sacrifice so that we could be saved. You see, church, what I want you to see here is that the virgin birth is an extremely important doctrine. It explains how Jesus can be both fully God and fully human. It explains how Jesus is related to us through Adam, yet is the unique Son of God in a way that no human being is. It shows us how the eternal Son of God stepped out of eternity and was clothed in humanity. It shows us how Jesus can be the Son of God, fully human, yet not guilty of Adam's sin. And this is all important to us, because if you go back to that passage that we read in Hebrews just a minute ago, it ended in verse 15, it's important to us because of this and what it says in verse 16, the next verse. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. In, our time, in time of need. So how should we draw near to God? We should draw near to God with confidence. And we should have this confidence because our high priest is one who intercedes for us and he is one who knows what it is to be us. He knows how and why we failed. And yet in those moments, when he faced those moments, he succeeded. And so we can come to him with confidence. Not confidence in what we've done or in who we are, but in confidence with what he's done and who he is. So Luke tells us in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that he wants us to have certainty in who Jesus is. Not not certainty in things that are wrong, 
but he wants us to have certainty in things that are fact. Luke tells us that Jesus is special because he's born of a virgin. And today we looked at the importance of that virgin birth. That that virgin birth is more than just a sign that something awesome is going to happen. It helps us have confidence because it tells us that Jesus is who he claims to be. It shows us how Jesus can make some of the claims that he does to be son of God. It shows us how he is uniquely qualified to be our substitute and sacrifice because he had never sinned and was not born into sin like us. Because of who Jesus is and what he did, we can have confidence in drawing near to the throne of grace. That's what the angel Gabriel conveyed to Mary. That's what the Holy Spirit accomplished when he came upon her and conceived Jesus in her womb. All of that. The sign of the miracle of Jesus' uh, virgin birth is not just validating that he's the Son of God, but it's all that we unpack today so that we can have confidence in who Jesus is. So the, the praise team's going to come, and we're going to sing a song, and we're going to close this out. And so the thing that I just want to challenge you guys with as we uh, move through the, this closing time is just our, the, the blessing that God has given us in affirming to us that Jesus is not like any other man. But yet, as we saw in Hebrews, he is just like any other man. He's one who can sympathize us in every way. So what that means is no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've experienced, he understands. And we can take those needs to him. So this is a time of response where we can pray as uh, the praise teams are singing. The, the altar's open for us to lay our burdens down before him. Or if you want to know more about what it is to place your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, then come talk to me. We'd love to visit with you a little bit more about what it is to have faith in Jesus. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that we be strengthened and encouraged by your word today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.